I will tell you that many times when uh, we gather together, there are people who are able to listen to the lessons here that are not present. And uh, each week I get a report from our website about how many people access our website and the lessons that they listen to. I was a little bit, uh, I guess you would say, interested this week. I showed it to Brother Paul a few minutes ago. Uh, the lesson two weeks ago tonight had 3,481 hits on it. And I thought, boy, that's ten times the attendance. And then before services, Brother Roger told me that he had two lessons of mine going at the same time. And I'm assuming he had one in each year going. So uh, uh, I'm going to attribute at least a couple thousand of those to Brother Roger. But uh, still, we do have a number of people who listen on a regular basis to uh, our lessons here. And I want you to know that uh, it's able to be able to reach people in other countries and in other places. And hopefully what we're able to teach is able to help someone be able to appreciate God's Word better. Tonight is the third lesson and the final lesson in the series of lessons. And what we've talked about is how to read the Bible. We talked about that two weeks ago tonight. We talked about last Sunday evening about how to study the Bible, how to go more in-depth, if you will, to try to learn uh, some of the main points that are found there, with particular emphasis upon meditating upon God's Word. And tonight we're going to talk about how to apply what we have learned. You know, if you go to what Jesus said in John 13 and verse 17, He says, if you know these things... Blessed are you if you do them. You know, I can be the best student of God's Word that has ever lived. I can be able to find every passage on a particular topic and be able to know how they all fit together, but if I don't do them, there's no blessing in them for me. Or in Romans chapter 2 and verse 13, Paul says, For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. It's not just the fact that I'm able to hear someone preach it or I'm going to be able to learn it by studying it, but it's the fact that I do it. In James 1 and verse 22, this is a wonderful passage with regards to this, but just pulling out a couple of the verses. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. It's very easy for us to fool ourselves into thinking that Simply hearing, simply learning is enough. And you drop down to verse 25. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. And then the passage which I think is the clincher, and that's where James says in James 4 verse 17, Therefore, to him that knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. So we learn God's Word, we read it, we study it, and now God wants us to apply it. And so tonight, here we're going to talk about four things that are involved in applying God's Word. And the first one is going to be that of principles. There are a number of principles that are enunciated in the Bible that we can read and, and be able to say, now there's a lesson in that and I've got to apply that. 
Number two are precepts. Those are specific statements from God that we have to keep. Number three is patterns. So you and I see a pattern in Scripture and we find out how that applies to us and how we are to keep those. And then number four is something which people really struggle with, and that is, is the silence of God permissive or prohibitive? When we start thinking about, when we read something and we say, well, now God didn't say anything about that. So can I do it? Is that permissive or is that prohibitive? We need to talk about that. Let's begin, first of all, with principles. And when you study a passage, there are generally principles that you can draw from that. In other words, if you're reading in God's Word and you're saying, okay, is there something in there for me? A passage may not have direct application to one's life, but there are principles that are taught therein. And you can say, well, I don't know where you're going with this. What I want to do is... As I mentioned on the DIY shows, when you you watch someone do it and you see how it applies. So I want to begin by using an example which I think could be a great example for us to understand. We're reading and studying in the book of 1 Corinthians. We come to 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 1 and Paul says, Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. Now, lest you go ahead and read the rest of it, I'm going to blank that out for just a moment. He says, I want you to pursue love and desire spiritual gifts. Folks, spiritual gifts aren't available anymore. In fact, just a few verses before, if you go back to chapter 13, he said, for we know in part, we prophesy in part, but then that which is perfect has come, that which is in part shall be done away. So there's no more spiritual gifts. So this cannot apply to me directly. I cannot desire to prophesy because the gift of prophecy is no longer available. But is there a principle in it? Is there something to look at? Well, let's drop down to verse 6. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit unless I speak to you either by Revelation, by knowledge, by prophesying, or by teaching. He said, what's it going to benefit you unless I use a gift that actually builds you up? Now you drop down to verse 12. Even so you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. Do you mean there's a principle there? Yes, why were these spiritual gifts given? They weren't given so a person could show off their talent and their ability. These spiritual gifts were given to edify, encourage, and uplift the church. Drop to verse 26. What is it then, brethren, when you come together? Each one of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. Do you notice a common theme running through those verses? That of building one another up, that of edifying. So is there a principle in 1 Corinthians 14 that applies? I'd suggest to you there is. And the principle that is there is that of edifying, building up, and encouraging the local church. 
Spiritual gifts were given for edification. And love seeks edification. It seeks the building up of the church. Listen to Romans chapter 14 verse 19. Therefore let us pursue things which make for peace and things by which we may edify one another. Or for Thessalonians 5.11, Therefore comfort each other and edify one another just also as you are doing. So when I come to passages like this, there may be a principle involved even though the direct application of desiring spiritual gifts does not apply to me. But let me give you another example. If you turn to Acts 19, Paul has gone to the city of Ephesus. And while he is there, he has taught about Jesus Christ. He's established a congregation. He has a thriving group of people now that all Asia has heard the word of the Lord. And there were some Jewish exorcists. That is, those people who were trying to cast out demons. And this was dealing in the realm of the demonic possession and what occurred is these men tried to cast out some demons, and the demon said, Paul I know, Jesus I know, but who are you? And the spirit jumped out and leapt on those guys and whipped them. That's just the bottom line of it. That's the, the way we put it. The result was that of something rather remarkable. Look at verses 18 and going through verse 20. And many who had believed came and confessing and telling their deeds. Also many who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and it was totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Now we don't again have the same situation. We don't have demon possession today. We don't have people who have the ability to cast out demons today. But you see what happened here? You have people who were influenced by this dark side of the magical arts. And they saw a clear distinction between the right and the wrong. And they said, we've got to fess up. They came confessing, telling their deeds, burning their books. When you start looking, one who genuinely repents must separate himself from ungodliness. What that means is, I may not have a magical book that represents the dark side, but if I do have something that does have a connection to my old sinful life, it's time for me to cut it off. Or, to use this case, the burning of the books. Let me illustrate this to you. In Luke chapter 3, John the Baptist had just multitudes coming to him out near the Jordan River. They were coming out to be baptized by him. Verse 8, John tells them, Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. You see, people were coming and he says, what you've got to do is you've got to show you've repented by something you do. These people in Ephesus show they've repented by burning their books. But you drop down to verse 10. So the people ask him, saying, what shall we do then? He answered to them, he who has two tunics, 
let him give to him who has none, and he who has food, let him do likewise. Then the tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what is appointed for you. And likewise the soldiers asked him, saying, What shall we do? So he said to them, Do not intimidate anyone or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. Oh, you mean that whatever situation in which I find myself, if I am bearing fruits worthy of repentance, that I am changing my ways exactly. And that's a principle from Acts 19 as well as from Luke chapter 3. But now I want to move on quickly and talk about precepts. Now precepts are commands in the Bible. For instance, in Hebrews 9 and verse 19, For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law. You have Moses giving God's laws. That's found in the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And those precepts that are given there were expected to be kept. When I go to Nehemiah chapter 9 and verse 14, he said, You made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them precepts, statutes, laws by the hand of Moses your servant. You see, God's message, His will, is stated in precepts. Psalm 119, verse 4. You have commanded us to keep your precepts diligently. Verse 104. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Mark 10 and verse 5. And Jesus answered and said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, He wrote you this precept. You see, all of these things involve God's precepts and God's laws. But these precepts are stated or given as commands in various ways. Now again, like I mentioned last week, it's not my purpose to teach a grammar lesson. I'm not the best one to teach grammar at all. But I do understand that when you read the Bible, sometimes they're put in the imperative mood or they're put in the indicative mood or the uh, interrogative mood. And there's actually a fourth one called the hortatory, which is a wish. And I can go to the Bible and I can find all of those stated as they are precepts of God. Let me give you an illustration of at least these three. Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. They had asked Peter and the rest of the apostles what they ought to do. And here's how Peter responds. Then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized. Those are stated in imperatives. And imperatives is a command. This is something that you must do. Well, let me give you a further illustration. Sometimes there's simple statements Indicatives, which is just a statement of fact. He had told them in Mark 16, verse 15, to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Verse 16 says, He who believes and is baptized shall be saved. It's not in the imperative mood. It's in the indicative. But that's a statement of fact. The person who believes and the person who is baptized shall be saved. That's just as much a precept or a command of God as the ones that are in the imperative. 
But then sometimes they are stated as an interrogative, as a question. Let me illustrate that to you. In Romans 6 and verse 1, Paul says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Of course, you know what verse 2 says. God forbid, or certainly not. He is asking a question, and there is that a precept of God that we should not continue in sin that grace may abound? Obviously it is. It's stated as a statement of fact in 1 John chapter 3, verse 9 and following. So ask the question with regards to the precepts of God's Word. Is this a universal obligation to all men? Is it? If it is a universal obligation to all men, then it, it applies to me and it's a precept that I must obey. Or is it at least a class of which I am a part? Has God commanded everyone since the cross to repent of their sins? Very much so. Luke 13, verse 3, verse 5 says, I tell you, no, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Acts 17 and verse 30, the times of this ignorance God once overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Number three is patterns. And there's many people today in the Lord's church who do not appreciate pattern theology. And you say, what do you mean by pattern theology? And that is when I go to the Bible and I see a pattern illustrated in the life of the early church, am I to follow that same pattern? Well, yes. Let me give you a little bit of background. In Exodus 25 and verse 9, God said, according to all that I show you, that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all of its furnishings, just so shall you make it. In other words, God said, I've given you a pattern, and Moses, I want you to make it like that. You go to Exodus verse or 25, verse 40, and see to it that you make them according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. Moses, follow it carefully. Acts 7 and verse 44, Stephen, looking back, says, Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness as he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. You see, three times, the pattern, the pattern, the pattern. God gave Noah a pattern for building the ark. Well, do we have a pattern revealed in the New Testament for a way a person ought to live? Philippians chapter 3, verse 17 says, Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have for us, or have us for a pattern. Look at us. You see the way we're conducting ourselves? That's the way you're supposed to conduct yourself. That's the way you're supposed to live. Paul would say in 1 Timothy 1 and verse 16 about his own conversion. He would say, However, for this reason I obtain mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. 
Now, there's a real great lesson in that. Here I am, I'm out in the world, and I'm doing things that no Christian ought to do. And I'm out here, and now I come and recognize my behavior is unacceptable to God. Paul did that. And what did God do? God's mercy, because of the penitence of Paul's heart, forgave him. What about us? Paul says, I've become a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. He's a pattern for that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6 and verse 11, looking back to Old Testament Israel and the way that God had judged them, to those people in Corinth, he said, he'll judge you the same way. He said, now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after the things as they also lusted. Verse 11, now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. All these things become patterns or examples. But let me state when we come to the New Testament, before a pattern becomes binding, it must have a command implied. Now, I want you to think about that for just a moment. Not every pattern of behavior in the Bible is to be emulated. Judas sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Judas went out and hanged himself. Every one of the apostles betrayed the Lord. That's not a pattern for me to do. The Lord never commanded that. In fact, the Lord condemned that. On the other hand, there are places in the Bible where I see the early New Testament church doing something, even though I didn't see God give them a command. I see the apostles approving of their behavior. I see them practicing in that behavior. And so because of that, that becomes a pattern. Let me give you an example. You will not find one passage of Scripture that says you must hear the gospel, believe in Jesus Christ, repent of your sins, confess your faith in him, and then be baptized. But I would stand here and proclaim all day long the book of Acts teaches all five of those items. The reason why Romans 6 and verse 17 says, But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine. The word translated form here is the same word that is translated pattern in all those other places. That pattern of doctrine to which you were delivered. And I can go and look in those passages in the book of Acts and see those conversions and see in each of them a pattern for that. There's a pattern for worship. When we start looking at our singing, our giving, our partaking of the Lord's Supper, our praying, and our studying of God's Word, I, I can't find that all in one particular passage, but I can see that pattern very clearly revealed. I'll just mention to you the Lord's Supper. I can find the church at Corinth practicing it. Wrong. 
1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 20, Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. You're not doing it right. You drop down to verse 23, it says, For that which I received from the Lord, that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. You see, that occurred in the celebration of the Passover. But I see the New Testament church partaking of the Lord's Supper. And I see them doing it on the first day of the week. You see, I began to put together a pattern. And I go to Acts 20 and verse 7. Now, on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message till midnight. I can see a pattern that when the church assembled together on the first day of the week, they partook of the Lord's Supper. There had to be a command behind it. But it becomes a pattern that we emulate. Now, very quickly, number four, permission versus prohibition. And there's a very huge question regarding the silence of God. How do you interpret it? How do you apply it? Can one do only what God has said? Or can one do anything unless God has spoken, don't do it? I know you've got neighbors and friends. and They look at us and they say, why do you in your church not use instruments of music. And we say, well, we don't have any Bible authority for it. Their first response generally is always, but the Bible doesn't say you can't do it. That's a philosophy that has been at odds with one another for a long time. Can we do anything that we want to unless God says don't do it? Or can we only do what God says? Scripture is clear on this point. Let me just for a moment or two address two or three of these. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 13, the writer of the book of Hebrews is trying to talk about the priesthood of Melchizedek and the priesthood of Aaron. And he's tried to make the point that Jesus could not be the priest under the Aaronic system. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe. Now listen carefully from which no man has officiated at the altar. Well, why didn't anybody from other tribes officiate? For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning the priesthood. When he said, I want the tribe of Levi and the descendants of Aaron to serve as priests, he didn't have to say, I don't want those folks from Issachar. I don't want those folks from Zebulun. I don't want those folks from Judah serving as priest. The silence of God says, if you don't have a message, you don't do it. Let me give you another illustration. First Chronicles 15, verse 2, verse 13. Then David said, no one may carry the ark of God but the Levites. For the Lord has chosen them to carry the ark of God and to minister before him forever. Verse 13. 
For because you did not do it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us. Because we did not consult him about the proper order. David is saying the only people who can carry the ark are the Levites. And he's saying the only way we're going to do it is to carry it the right way. You know what happened? You go back to 2 Samuel 6 and verse 3. They set the ark of God on a new cart, brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Uzzah and Ahau drove the sons of Abinadab drove the new cart. You know what the problem was? That wasn't the way God said to transport it. When God said there are rings on each side, there's poles to go through those rings, and that the ark of God must be borne upon the shoulders of the descendants of Aaron, that means that nobody else can carry it any other way. You see the principle that's involved? Many things practiced today by various religions lack Bible authority. We don't have Bible authority to create, for instance, a new level of hierarchy in the church. That's the reason why you don't have archbishops, you don't have cardinals, you don't have a pope. That's the reason why you don't have a clergy-laity distinction like some churches do. That's the reason why you don't have instrumental music or some other sort of uh, various ways of offering praise and worship. Because when God has designated what He wants, man does not have the right to change that. Now let me ask a question and deal with another matter which does need to be addressed. Is silence ever permissive? And I would suggest to you, when God gives an obligation but does not specify how, then he has allowed his silence to give us the permission to choose the best way, or we would say the most expedient means of carrying out God's command. For instance, when God says to go into all the world, Mark 16 and verse 15, he did not say how you have to go. I've got an obligation. It has to be fulfilled when that generic command is given, but no specific is given, then I am left to whatever means that is the most expedient to carry that out. And some people get the two confused. When God gives a generic command but not the specific, He gives you the opportunity to choose. When God gives a generic command and a specific command, then you do not have the permission. I hope I made that clear. The wise man hears and does what God says. You know, our little children sometimes get songs that just, they just teach such basic, simple things. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I'll liken him to a wise man who built his house upon the rock. The rains descended, the floods came, the winds blew upon that house and beat that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. Those are the people who apply God's Word. Only you can make the choice that you're going to read your Bible, that you're going to study your Bible, and that you're going to obey your Bible. And I'm going to ask that if you will apply the scriptures to your salvation right now.
You see, because the scriptures, as I have tried to allude in several of our examples, involves teaching people that they ought to repent of their sins, confess that faith that they have in Jesus Christ, and then be baptized for the remission of their sins. That is God's plan for saving you. And you apply it by doing it. And if you are one of God's children and you recognize sin in your life, the way you apply it is to do what He says to do. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9. If you need to come, come while we sing this song of invitation.